0: So we are in a new year, and we are going to start a new sermon series together, moving through the Old Testament book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we're going to find many great lessons for living by faith in a fallen world. Now in this book, the nation of Israel finally enters into the land that God had promised hundreds of years earlier to give to Abraham's descendants. So after enslavement in Egypt, years of wandering in the wilderness, and many life lessons learned along the way, Israel was finally going to enter this place of rest and abundance and blessing. There was just one problem. That's that there were already people living in the land. And the book of Joshua details how God gave the Israelites victory over those people, the Canaanites and that's where we find the problem that many critics have with the book of Joshua. You see, God commanded Israel to go and conquer, and at times we'll be told that they conquered a city and everyone in it, men, women, and children, were killed. So critics have taken this and long accused God of being a bully, a madman, guilty of genocide, and the ethnic cleansing of the land. So I want us to address this before we begin our study in the book of Joshua. Now our goal today is not going to be to cover every question and detail and criticism that individuals raise, but instead for us to look at all the details so that we can have a firm understanding in order that we would be able to lovingly respond to and not be taken off guard by Those who hurl these accusations against our great God. So let's begin here. It's true that God commanded Israel several times in the book of Deuteronomy that when they entered into the promised land, they were to leave none of the inhabitants alive. They were to annihilate and destroy the Canaanites. But at the same time, In many of the same passages, God tells Israel that they were to drive out those nations, dispossess them from the land, annihilate, drive out, destroy, dispossess. I don't know about you, but these sound like two very different things. So how do we reconcile these two commands together? I believe we reconcile them this way. When the Israelites came into the promised land, we'll find that the inhabitants there, they were... They were terrified. They were terrified because they had an understanding of what Israel was there to do, and, and they had an understanding of how powerful the one true God guiding Israel was. That means that the Canaanites, including noncombatants like women and children, that means they had every opportunity to flee or be driven out before any battles took place. Or, as we'll see in the book of Joshua, it means that they had the opportunity to enter into the nation of Israel by faith in the one true God. It was those inhabitants who stubbornly chose to stay in opposition to the clear power of God, they were the ones who were to be completely destroyed. Now, to understand why God would call for their destruction, we need to understand what the Canaanite nations were like. They were not these upstanding, innocent, peace-loving people. No, they're described in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 18 as sexually immoral nations, engaging in practices such as incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and other abominable practices as well. They were sacrificing their children to idols through the fire, engaging in practices like witchcraft. And other occult things. In other words, the Canaanites were living in widespread, persistent, and unrepentant immorality, and it was permeating generation after generation. If they were allowed to stay in the land and live alongside the Israelites, well, then those same sins and that same idolatry would have moved into the nation of Israel as well. So again, those inhabitants who choose not. To flee, or chose not to believe in God, they would face God's judgment for their unrepentant sin. And God brought that judgment through the nation of Israel. By the way, spoiler alert for everyone, Israel did not drive out all the nations. And as a result, centuries later, Israel had become engaged in the same sins, and idolatry as the wicked nations before them. As a result, they too faced God's judgment for their unrepentant sin, and God brought that judgment on Israel through the nations of Babylon and Assyria who conquered them. So the judgment that we're going to see in the book of Joshua, it's not about some ethnic cleansing, as some people try and falsely argue. It's not about God being impulsive. It's about the just judgment for sin. And, of course, critics aren't going to like that or agree with that. But, church, we need to remember, just like when we looked at the doctrine of hell a few weeks ago, we need to remember that the real problem is not the severity of, of the punishment for sin, the real problem is our understanding of the severity of sin. The real problem is we don't see sin the way God does. Now, I bring up all these details because without these details, when we go into the story, we are going to fail to understand just who our God is. We need the details. Think of it this way. Years ago, a Christian professor named Paul, he he wrote about an automobile accident that he and his family had gotten into. So they were driving in their van and and another vehicle swerved to avoid an animal on the road and hit Paul's car. Now Paul's five-year-old son Peter was in the car at the time and when the accident occurred, Peter's head hit the side window, fracturing his skull and lacerating his forehead. Thankfully, Peter survived. But he required a number of surgeries and a special ointment being applied to his forehead in order to begin the healing process. And Paul wrote about that day when they were finally ready to remove Peter's post-surgical bandage from what Paul described as his son's crusted over but healing forehead. This should have been a, a joyful moment, but for Peter... It was a terrifying moment. And when his parents started to take the bandage off Peter, he he cried and he screamed and he tried to run away. And his father Paul said that any uninformed eavesdropper outside would have thought that Paul and his wife were child torturers. Because without all the information, others wouldn't have understood the purpose and the love behind what was taking place inside. Likewise, to the uninformed individual, the God of the book of Joshua seems cruel. He seems unjust. But I believe the details of Scripture will prove otherwise. So today I want us to address the question, church, is our God a God of genocide or a God of justice? Thankfully, God made the answer to this clear long before Joshua's day. We're going to see that together through a brief account in the book of Genesis. So if you've already turned to Joshua, sorry to disappoint you, but we are going to turn now to Genesis chapter 18, which is where we will be this morning. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you use one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 12, Genesis chapter 18. 18 This chapter records what took place hundreds of years before Israel entered into the promised land and I pray that through this account we'll better understand God and his purposes when we do begin our study in Joshua next week. Now, Genesis chapter 18 is a part of Abraham's story as he was following the Lord by faith. And on this day in Genesis 18 Abraham had three visitors. As the story unfolds, we find that two of those visitors were angels, and the third visitor was the Lord himself. Now, in theology, we would refer to this as a Christophany, a Christophany, which is when Jesus Christ temporarily took on a visible form for a special purpose prior to when he permanently took on a human body at the virgin birth. And I'd love for us to talk more about that, but for now, I want us to understand that is who Abraham was going to be speaking with here, with the Lord himself. So as the Lord and these two angels ended their visit with Abraham, we now enter into Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. We find this. It says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. All right, we're going to pause right here. Keep your place there in Genesis. One of the reasons for the Lord's visit to Abraham was to judge the nearby cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, notice right away why this judgment was coming. It was because those cities, their sin was grievous in the sight of God. In fact, go read chapter 19 today, this week, and you'll find that the city quickly lived up to its reputation as a moral cesspool Understand, God is not out there looking for people to zap off the face of the earth for fun. No, instead, what we find consistently throughout Scripture is that God takes sin seriously. Amen. But we also find that He desires that people would repent of their sin and be saved rather than face the judgment that sin deserves. Now, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, they had ample time and opportunity to repent and to turn to God. Earlier chapters reveal how the kings of these two cities, well, they they witnessed the power and the truth about God through their earlier interactions with Abraham. But they made no effort to know God, to live for Him, or to examine their lives. They had their chance to repent. But they had so seared their consciences, so indulged in sin and their rejection of God, that now judgment was going to come. You see, God is slow to anger. He is is long-suffering towards us. But He is not accepting of sin. A time comes when our sin, our unbelief, our rejection of him reaches a breaking point, And that's when judgment is the only proper response. That was the case for Sodom and Gomorrah. In the book of Joshua, that was the case for the Canaanites in the promised land. Their sin had reached its breaking point. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because in Genesis chapter 15, God was talking with Abraham and he showed Abraham this land that he promised to give his descendants, said that they would inherit it. But God told Abraham it wasn't time yet. Listen to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 16. He said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, the people living in the promised land had hundreds of years to recognize their sin and turn to the one true God. But instead, they continued this downward spiral deep into sin. Their sin reached its full measure, and that that is when Joshua and the Israelites moved in. Now, back in Genesis chapter 18, in Abraham's day, there was still time for those inhabitants of the promised land to repent, but there wasn't that time for Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin was full. It was complete. The only correct response was judgment. Uh, For God to ignore the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, to allow it to continue, would actually be unjust and unloving. Because that would only allow their sin to spread like a cancer, corrupting many others to the destruction of their souls. And God wanted Abraham to understand all of this, just like he wants us to understand this. He wanted Abraham to. Why? Why was that important to God? So that Abraham would know that this coming judgment wasn't some genocide or evil that God was inflicting, but so that Abraham would know that God is just. And church, God is just because God's judgment has a purpose, and the purpose is to punish unrepentant sin. That is the purpose of God's judgment. Abraham and his descendants, they needed to understand that. They needed to understand the severity of sin and the justice of God and the importance of doing what's right in his eyes. You may have noticed as we read a little bit earlier that the Lord said he was going to go down to see if their sin was as bad as the outcry that had come to him. Now look, God is all-knowing. He didn't need to go down and investigate for himself. Now he did this for our benefit. He did this for us, so that through this we would understand that God... God isn't impulsive and quick-tempered in his judgment, but rather that his judgment is always right. We need to understand that. He had seen already the unrepentant sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, just as for hundreds of years he saw the unrepentant sin of the Canaanites living in the promised land. There's more for us to see, though, about his justice, so let's return to Genesis 18. We're going to look at verse 22. Verse 22. Says the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Abraham clearly didn't disagree with the fact that these cities were wicked. But you see, his his nephew Lot lived there. and He was concerned for Lot and for any other righteous people that might be there. So Abraham tries to reason for mercy on behalf of the cities. He starts with 50. What if you find 50 righteous people there? Let them off the hook. And then he he says, well, okay, what about 45, 40, 30, 20? And finally, Abraham says 10. Again, clearly, Abraham, he realized the prospect of finding any righteous people there is is pretty low. He knew that it was a wicked place. But God graciously granted these requests. God said that he would spare all those sinners deserving of wrath and judgment, which would give them more time to repent and turn to him. So let's understand what this is showing us. This shows that God doesn't desire to punish evildoers, but rather, as the Bible tells us in Ezekiel 33, but rather that we would turn from our wicked ways and live. So church, understand. We can know that God is just because God's judgment is always preceded by time to turn to Him. It is always preceded by time to turn to Him. His judgment is, makes him just. The time he gives people to seek him for repentance, that makes him loving. And our God is both just and loving. As one preacher wrote years ago, we may force the Lord to punish us, we will never have to force him to love us. God loves us. He wants to show us mercy and he gives this world so much time, and so many opportunities to turn to him. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When God's judgment comes, it's because we've chosen sin over him. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't seek them out. They didn't repent. And there weren't even 10 righteous people there. Go read chapter 19. You'll see. You'll see that. God's judgment came because the city was filled with immorality from the greatest to the least of them. Rest assured, the same thing was true when Joshua and the Israelites came to the promised land. The land was filled with immorality that only grew with time. The wicked nations living in the promised land, they, they had heard of the mighty things that God had done. They were filled with fear, and they still, they still had this opportunity to flee or to fall on their knees and follow the one true God. But by and large, they rejected the Lord. And all that was going to be left was judgment, just like with Sodom and Gomorrah. The beginning of Genesis chapter 19 makes it clear that God's judgments are never mistaken. God said that these were wicked cities, and in less than a day's time, the sin of the city was on full and public display. Even Lot hesitated to leave, but God mercifully brought Lot and his family out. We find this in Genesis 19 verse 24. It says, Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground but his wife that's lot's wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt understand god is is gracious Like when he gave even the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah evidence of who he is and time to repent. God's gracious. But those cities chose sin. Understand also that God is merciful and he brought Lot and Lot's family out and they were told as they fled not to look back. But when Lot's wife lingered in disbelief, in disobedience, when she looked back at the city with longing, That's when she faced judgment too, which is important for us to see so that we would understand that our God is not a God of partiality. Sin is sin. And as the just judge, he must punish sin. That's why he punished the wicked inhabitants in the promised land in the book of Joshua. That's why throughout much of the Old Testament, we find that God punished Israel time and time again for her disobedience as well. God isn't a God of partiality. Now, he is a God of mercy, of grace, of love, and of forgiveness. But when we reject these things, that's when we'll find he's a God of holiness and justice. Understand, we can know that God is both loving and just because God's judgments are a result of our personal choice to reject him. Church, as we begin to study Joshua next week, Let's keep these truths close to our heart throughout that study. Our God is a just God. He is. And his judgments are a result of sin and the decision to reject him and his offer of forgiveness. Genesis 18 is a reminder that his justice is always fair. And it always comes after a period of great grace. And the same was true for the nations living in the promised land when Joshua and the Israelites moved in. So, what should we say when the world tries to take the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, or the book of Joshua, and use these to point at God and say that he is cruel and evil and unjust? What do we say? I think we need to explain to them this truth. The truth is that God is just in his judgment and abundant and his forgiveness. and It is both these truths that we need to explain. That God is just in his judgment, but he is abundant in that offer of forgiveness. You see, God gives us the freedom to choose which of these things we will receive. Now, God isn't genocidal. He's just. He's also loving and gracious and merciful. And church, there are so many people in this world who are confused about, who our God is. And we need to tell them that despite our grievous sin, God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the wrath we deserve for sin. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the wrath and punishment we deserve. And after he died, he was buried, and three days later, he powerfully rose from the dead. And we need to tell people that right now, Jesus is standing in heaven, waiting to forgive them of all their sins to give them the salvation of their soul, pardon them from the penalty of hell, and give them eternal life. For those of us who have received these things, who have gone to Jesus Christ in faith, let's realize that many people are missing the biggest part of the story of Scripture, which is that God wants to save them and bring them into a relationship with himself. And if we've entered that relationship, we should desire to tell others about it. Because if they continue to reject God and his offer of forgiveness, then one day they will face God's judgment when this life ends. And we need to tell them that. Friend, if you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you've never given your life to Him, please understand that we have two options. We can recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, or we can scoff at God and reject His offer of forgiveness. But understand that the choice we make will determine the eternity that we live out after this life. As I tell the individuals who come to Open Gym on Thursday nights, quite often I tell them that where we stand with Jesus Christ in this life will determine what happens when we stand before Jesus at the end of this life. If you are here and Jesus is not your Savior, please understand you're separated from Him. And if you remain that way, you'll be separated forever from Him after this life. But the Bible says in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. He is waiting to forgive you of all your sins and to save you from hell, to give you eternal life. The question is, will you give your life to him? Because again, the choice is yours. And we want you to know before you leave that you can make that choice today. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's you and you know, you know that you're a sinner, but you know Jesus isn't your savior. Please know that you can come and talk to me during this final invitation song. We can talk about this, pray together. But if you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ, you can do that right now. You can go to Jesus in prayer and admit to Him that you know you're a sinner. But that you know He died on the cross for you. That you believe He didn't stay in the grave, but that He rose from the dead. Friend, give Him your life. He'll forgive you of all your sins. He will. It will give you eternal life, dear Heavenly Father. I pray that if there is anyone joining us who still hasn't made that decision, I pray they'd be willing to come and talk to me during the invitation. I pray that you continue to work on their heart to show them how much you love them. And for those of us who have made that decision, thank you, thank you for showing us in your Word who you are. It's true that you're holy and just and because that sin must be punished. But It's also true that you're loving, gracious, full of mercy. You want us to be saved from our sin. And people need to know both of these truths. They need to know that you want to forgive them and save them. And they need to know the truth about what will happen if they reject you. So I pray that you would help us be a church faithful to share the gospel. That we wouldn't just come to church and agree with these things and then leave unchanged by your word. But that instead, we would have a burden to tell others about your great grace and mercy. I pray that you give each of us the opportunity to do that today. Thank you for this new year. Let it be a year where we are focused as a church on pursuing you and telling others about you. Father, we pray that in all these things you'd be glorified. And Father, we love you, but you proved when you sent your Son that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.